All right, so last time I spoke, I spoke on the topic of overcoming temptation. I think it was about a month ago. And in this overcoming temptation, we learned a couple things. One of the things we learned is temptation in and of itself is not a sin. It's when we act upon that temptation, that's when it becomes a sin. And if we keep walking in that temptation and keep sinning, that's when it leads to death. The other thing we learned that's really important even for today's topic is that temptation does not come from God. In fact, in James, it says that if a man's tempted, don't let him say that he's being tempted by God because he's being tempted and drawn away by his own fleshly desires. There's two things that cause temptation from what I can see in the scriptures. One is the devil. The other is our sinful flesh. And then we talked about four different examples that the Bible gives us about overcoming temptation. And the first example we looked at was actually the example of Jesus, which is probably the most powerful example to look at. And we saw that when Jesus was taken to the desert to be tempted by Satan, how did he overcome those temptations? He overcame them by the word of God. Every temptation that was given to Jesus, he responded with the word of God. And the application for us was we need to be storing God's word in our heart. Why? Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Meaning we're we're literally fellowshipping with Jesus and being transformed to His image when we spend time in the Word of God. The second thing we saw was Jesus commanded His disciples to stay on watch and pray. He said, pray and be watchful lest you be led into temptation. He also showed us with the Lord's Prayer, what are we supposed to pray? Lead us not into temptation. So prayer was another practical way that we can help overcome temptation in our life. The third example we saw was the example of Joseph. And Joseph, when he was being tempted by Pharaoh's wife to sleep with her, and he literally fleed. When she came at him, he literally ran out of the, the room, leaving his clothes behind. And the application was, sometimes in this life, when you're tempted, you just gotta run. You just got to get rid of the things that are in your life that will tempt you. I gave the example of your TV. You know, Matthew says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck out your eye. Because it's better that you lose your eye than actually lose your soul. So it's better you lose that TV than lose your soul. And so we need to literally flee. And then last but not least, we saw an application of fellowshipping with believers. We... The church can help each other overcome temptation. Because the Bible says, do not forsake the assembly. Right? Why? Because we encourage one another, we strengthen one another. Iron sharpens iron. And we're supposed to approach each other with a spirit of gentleness and really exhort, for lack of a better way to say it, exhort people when they're falling into temptation, calling each other out in a spirit of gentleness. So let me ask you, show of hands, how has your walk with overcoming temptation been? Good? Bad? (laughs) Mine too. It's tough. It's very, very tough. You know, it's interesting, and see if I have it in my notes, I think it didn't print out. There's like, and I hope I don't get these stats wrong, you remember like 10% of what you hear. 10% of what you hear. And as you go, when you go through the process, they've done this study. If you, if you listen and write it down, you remember like 20%. If you see it, you listen to it, and you write it down, it's like 30 to 50% you'll remember. But you'll remember 90% of what you do. 
of what you hear and then go put into practice immediately. So this is my encouragement to all of you is these four applications, we have to put them into practice daily in our lives for them to take effect. And I don't know about you guys, but in the scriptures, it talks about Jesus's mercies are new every morning. And I am so thankful that his mercies are new every morning. I'll tell you why. Because when you prepare to preach, and you're preparing to share with people what it's like to live the Christian life, and and what we need to do to become like Christ, there's nothing that convicts you faster with your own lack of Christness in your life. I mean, every little lie comes into your head that you've told this last week, every little bad thought that you've had, and you say to yourself, I am unqualified to preach. I am unqualified, not in any sense of there's a qualification, but if it's not for the mercy and grace of Jesus in our lives, we're all doomed. And if you remember from my last sermon, I shared, in just a little point, I shared a little bit of my personal struggle in my life with temptation has been I've, I've kind of gotten angry at God because sometimes I feel like it's not fair that I'm going through trial and temptation because I didn't make myself this way. You know, a perfect example of that would be for men. You know, God could have created us to fall in love with one woman and only desire that woman. But instead, for some reason, he created us to where, yes, we desire that woman, but we still might desire other women. That's not, like, to me, I go, that's not fair. I didn't create myself this way, right? And, and that's why it's important, the point making that temptation does not come from God. Does not come from God. But I kind of skirted and didn't answer the question of why does God allow temptation? Why does God allow trials and temptations in your life? Show of hands, just a poll real quick. How many have a trial in their life right now? A trial with your health? Trial with maybe a family member's health, a friend's health? At your work, a trial with a boss, a colleague? Maybe in your marriage, you're having trial and tribulation right now. I'll share a personal story with you. When I was 14, 15 years old, we got home from camping. We were camping with my family in North Carolina, and we were driving home to Virginia. We just got home. It was a probably three, four-hour drive. And we just got in the house, and I guess my dad went over, and he played the voicemails. And all of a sudden, he started screaming, get back in the car, everybody back in the car. I had no idea what was going on, but I got back in the car, and we drove five minutes up the road to where my cousins live. And it was in that moment I realized that my cousin had been hit by a car just, just a little while earlier. Um, the car was going 50 miles an hour. The, my cousin was about 10 years old at the time. And so he went into intensive care. Almost didn't survive. Praise God, he survived. But guess what? He lives in a wheelchair. And he can't move the left side of his body, basically, at all. He can barely speak. Not only can he barely speak, you know, his intellect, and this is not a demeaning comment, but his intellect is that of probably a teenager, 13, 14-year-old boy. Why? Why? Why does God allow trials? Why did he allow my uncle and aunt, why does he allow our family to have to go through that? That's a deep question. It's a hard question. And my cousin, as you guys remember me preaching 
um, you know, my share that my cousin passed away about a year ago, a little over a year ago. And he was driving home one night on his motorcycle in California. And there was a new teenage driver driving with their dad, learning how to drive. And turned to pull into their house and didn't see him. His motorcycle hit the side of the car and he passed away. Why? Not only why for my cousin who's passed away, why for that kid? That kid now has to live with that for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, he has to live with that trial and that tribulation. I probably skirted this question because this is one of the hardest questions in our lives. You could flip the question to say, why does God allow pain and suffering? Why does he allow evil in the world? You know, there's a lot of people out there that this is what keeps them from God. This is their, I know Larry King is a famous one. Larry King talks about how, I can't believe in God. God can't exist, not just because there's evil in the world, there's trials in the world, but the volume of evil. The volume of trial, there's no way a loving God, especially the Christian God who claims to be loving, can exist because a a loving God would not allow the evil, so therefore there is no God. Now, we could spend a whole year or more studying just this problem of suffering and evil and why does it exist. We don't have the time today. Nor am I qualifying. So at this point, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Tim to give his exposition on the problem of suffering. I appreciate it, guys. I'm going to go home. So, so we don't have time to really, really dive in from an apologetic standpoint. And I'm not even a qualified teacher on this subject. But what I want to share with you this morning is I want to share with you what I've learned in my journey with this question And I think once you come to understand a foundation of where Jesus is coming from or God is coming from, it helps you understand why we face trials. And then I want to point out to us a couple points that I think God uses trials to help sanctify us. We've been going through this series of growing growing in grace. And growing in grace is, is the process of sanctification And trials are a way that God sanctifies us. And I just want to cover a few points on that. But let's start with this question of how can God exist if there's evil in the world? Larry King's question, I won't believe in God. And maybe some of you suffer. I I really struggled with this in my teenage years. Saying if there was evil, if there was an atrocity happening in in the room next door, someone was getting murdered, something bad was happening to a child, and we sat here and did nothing, we would be evil. But yet, God sees these things and doesn't stop it. Why? And so, as we look at the argument, the argument would be framed this way. If a loving and powerful God exists, he would not allow evil to exist. Evil does exist. We all face it every day in our lives. We can't deny it. We see it on the news. Therefore, there must be no God. This is the argument. So I'm a huge fan of Ravi Zacharias. If you guys want to dive in to studying, 
you know, these type of problems and, and how to deal with them from a theological standpoint or, or foundational standpoint, I would encourage you to look this guy up, Ravi Zacharias. Incredible story. But he really taught me in my kind of understanding of this question that actually this statement of there can't be a God because evil exists does not actually disprove God. It actually proves God. And I'm going to walk you through the logic of how. See, for Larry King, using him as the example, for him to say, if a loving and powerful God exists, he would not allow evil to exist. Evil does exist, therefore there must be a no God. That means Larry King must believe that if there's evil, there's got to be the counterpart of good. Because you can't have evil without having something that he's trying to get to, which is good. So there must be a good. So that takes us to the logic of, if there is evil and good, if there's right and wrong, then there must be a moral law. A moral law that helps us define what is right and what is wrong. Because if there's no moral law, Larry King, in this statement, anybody who's struggling with this statement is claiming that there is an absolute good. That there's a good. They're actually holding God to this good. There must be a moral law that helps us define what is evil and what is good. And if there's a moral law that helps us define what is evil and what is good, what does that mean? There must be a moral law giver. There must be someone or something that defines what that moral law is. So in essence, in trying to prove, disprove God with evil, you're actually proving that there is a God. Because if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. And if there's no moral law, there's no differentiation between what is evil and what is good. And if there's no differentiation between what is evil and what is good, what is even the question? What are you holding God to? Meaning, if we are just the product, we as humans are just the product of time plus matter plus chance. You guys have heard of the Big Bang. If we're just the product of time plus matter coming together plus chance forming us all, where is this whole concept of evil and good even coming from? It's all relative. What's good for Janice is good for Janice. What's evil for Luke is evil for Luke. And every person that you talk to, to go, what is your standard of right and wrong? You say there's evil, but how do you define evil and good? And how you define evil and good, where do you get that from? See, in essence, this statement alone proves there's got to be some framework of there being a moral law giver. There has to be something outside of us that determines what is right and wrong. The only way this question even holds anything, and this also speaks to us being drawn to Christ, because everybody in their hearts wants to know what's right and wrong and wants to stop evil. And this alone leads us to God, but it doesn't answer the total question, why does God allow evil? So, even though I can say to Larry King or say to someone, hey, just in you saying there's evil actually proves that there has to be a God out there to define what is good and evil or some type of being. It doesn't define for us as Christians why does our God, who claims to be loving, right? Our God is all loving. 
Why does he allow evil to exist? See, I've come to understand that having evil and sin in the world was not God's original plan. What I'm not saying is God knew what was going to happen. I'm not saying he didn't know what was going to happen. But it was not his original plan. Because in the garden, he did not create the garden with a bunch of evil. He did not do that. And where we're going, in the end, in heaven, there's going to be no more weeping and gnashing of teeth. No more trials. No more tribulation. No more temptation. So God's plan, and his original plan, he did not want evil to be there. So I think the answer for us of why God allows evil can actually be found in 2 Peter 3.9. You guys can turn there with me if you want. But 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What I've come to understand about God allowing evil in the world is the supreme ethic of the Bible. The Pharisees and the Sadducees asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What is the supreme ethic? And what did he say? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Love, loving the Lord, is the supreme ethic. And what you have to understand about love is you can't have love without free will. You cannot have love without the option to not love. Because if you have love without the option to not love, it's just conformity. You're just a robot. So God has given us the greatest gift, which is the ability to love, which means we have the ability to have free will. In doing this, he's also allowed us to what? To not choose to love him, which results in what? It results in the evil that we see in the world. It results in the pain and suffering that we see in the world. And why I say the answer to why God allows evil in the world is 2 Peter 3.9. We know his ultimate goal is not for us to have evil. But what is he doing? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. He's not slow in destroying evil. As some understand it, instead he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When people talk to me about how can God allow this evil, how can God allow Adam to be in a wheelchair, shepherd to die on his motorcycle, what I always ask people is what level of evil should God accept? White lies? Can God accept white lies, just not people who you know, rape or murder or thieves? Should God accept your evil thoughts, your lust? The point being is, if God were to destroy evil from the face of the planet, He would destroy all of us. Every single one of us would be destroyed. How do I know this? Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. James 2.10, For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point, you lie just one time, he's guilty of breaking it all. See, the reason why God is patient is because he loves us and he wants to give us a chance 
to come to him. He is forbearing. He doesn't want this evil to happen, but he forbears with it to give us a chance that none should perish. No one should perish, but that we should all come to the saving grace and the knowledge of Jesus. For me to say to God, how can you allow this? would be for me to put my moral standards upon God. So I have to wrestle with where do I define, my, where do my moral standards come from? You see the problem with the argument? For people to say God can't exist because there's evil means they have to put their own moral standards upon God. The reason why God allows evil to happen is because in his great plan of the gospel, he's giving us a chance to come to him. This doesn't answer the question specifically in every detail of why God is allowing this to happen to you in your life or this evil to happen. But the foundation now, you know, is built upon a foundation of eternity. Ravi Zacharias says this, if eternity did not exist the whole argument of the problem with evil would fall apart. What does he mean by that? If this life was it, if this life was it, then we would not be able to say that in our minds that God is good. But because this life is not it, because there is the context and the backdrop of eternity, we now know that God is forbearing with us and allowing this at these points in times to give us a chance to come to Him. And what I also know from this, because I see it in Scriptures, is that He uses all of our trials, all of our tribulations for our good. This is what the Scripture says. We're going to live on this earth with trials and tribulations, but now we can rest assured that He's going to use all of these trials and tribulations for our good. The reason why I know this is because it states in Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. If we continued into 29, 29 talks about that purpose being transforming you into the image of Christ. So in everything you face in this life, He's using it as a way to bring you into the image of His Son. We also see in Philippians 1.6, And I am certain that God, who began the good work with you, or within you, will continue His work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. So I want to move into some practical, I think, ways that God uses trials and tribulations to help move us into His image. But I want to make sure I drive home the point for everyone that because we know there is evil and good, it points us to there being a God. And the reason why God is allowing this evil to happen on the face of this planet right now is because our God is a holy, perfect God. And for Him to erase and eradicate the evil would mean He would erase and eradicate you, which one day He will. One day He will come back and erase and eradicate the evil. But right now he's being patient, giving us a chance to be drawn to him. 
So during this time on earth where there is evil, we can rest assured that he's going to use these trials. He's going to use these tribulations, these temptations in our life as a way to draw us to his image of his son. As a way for our good to be transformed into the image of Christ. First thing I see when I look at scriptures of how trials can help you is trials will help us grow spiritually. There's an incredible story and testimony in someone's life named Joni Erickson Tata. And I maybe have shared this before, but it really impacted me. She um, broke her neck when she was a young age. And basically, I believe it's called a quadriplegic, but I might be wrong in that. But she can literally only move her head. She's an incredible painter. She speaks all over the world. It's an amazing testimony. And someone asked her at one point, they said to her, would you take the dive again where she broke her neck? And she looked at him and said, are you asking me, would I want to be paralyzed like this? Do I want to go and suffer like I have? She said, absolutely not. Of course I would not take that dive again. She said, but if the dive is what it would take for me to experience the relationship I have with Christ today, she said, I would take that dive every single day. That right there, that story right there is a huge testament to why God allows trials to happen and how he can use them in order to bring us to him. We see here James 1, 2 through 4. This is the verse that Carl read, but consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Romans 5, 3-5 elaborates a little bit on this perseverance because it goes not only so, but we also glory in our suffering. So right before this, in context, it was talking about glorying in Jesus and Him saving us and His grace. But it goes on to say we also glory in our suffering because we know that the suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you, have, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What this is saying, where it says perseverance builds character, and character builds hope, I think, you know, I love parallels in life, how they point you to Christ. It's your faith, persevering proves out your faith. What do I mean by that? When you go to the gym, and you work out, it's really this simple, and you work out, you start to see the change in your body. And when you start to see the change, what does it do? It encourages you. So working out, it builds your discipline. Trust me, I've been trying at this now for a little over a year now, trying to wake up at 4.30 every morning. It builds a lot of character to have to go to the gym. builds a lot of discipline. But what's interesting about the parallel that God gives you in just the example in natural life is that as my 
health changes and my figure changes and all that, I get encouraged. I get inspired. And it makes me actually want to go to the gym more. And you find that people that go to the gym all the time get addicted to the gym. Like they, they want to be there. And the Christian faith is very similar. It's like it's super hard. You're persevering. But as you persevere, you're proving out your faith. And the reason why I know this is true is because as you withstand these trials and tribulations, you, you start to live the life and the testimony like Joni Eric and Tata lived, where it's like, I know Christ now at such a deeper level. We see this in the story of Job, where Job goes, I had heard about you, but now I've seen you. And this is Job who God says, consider my servant Job, and puts him through all this suffering. As we go through trials, it helps us grow spiritually because it makes us cling to Christ. It makes us have to practice this discipline, and as we practice this discipline, the fruits of living in Christ actually start to become apparent. And once you see the fruits, you start getting inspired, encouraged, and it makes you want to go back. Back to persevering. It's very, very interesting how God gives us the parallels in our lives. You see the same in marriage. You see, like, how often do you see where people celebrate 25 years of marriage, 50 years of marriage, and they say, I love you more today than I did back when we got married, and I didn't even think it was possible. But as you go through the trials and the tribulations, it brings you closer together. You experience a new love, a deeper love, it's the same in the Christian walk, and I think that's one of the reasons how God uses, or one of the ways God uses trials to transform us into his image. The other way I see is he uses trials to keep us humble. So I wrote down a uh, quote. This is a quote I use in business all the time, which is, comfort is the enemy of growth. Being comfortable is the enemy of growth in, in business and I think in life. Actually, Bill Gates says this, which is interesting. He goes, success is a lousy teacher. It seduces successful people into thinking they can't lose. That's a biblical principle here. God uses trials because we get complacent when, we, when our life's going well. I don't, it's because of our sinful nature probably, myself included. We get lazy. We, we, we stop serving. We try to be comfortable. And God uses a trial to keep you humble so you're not also, when you're successful, you tend to boast in yourself, we see this in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Even though I've received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a trial. A messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Proverbs 18, 12. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. 1 Peter 5, 6, 8 talks about humbling yourself. Casting all your anxieties on the Lord. Be alert and sober-minded because the devil's prowling around. We want to be in a constant state of humility. God uses trials to wake us up, to bring us back to him. I think trials also reveal what we really love. You know, you think Jonah, the story of Jonah in the Bible. If you were asked to go to Nineveh right now, where would your heart be? Where would your mind be? Heck, if you were asked to just give some of your money to the church, to the poor, where would your heart be? Where would your mind be? I think God gives us trials to show us where our heart is. 
and to, to refine us. You know, in, in the Old Testament, it talks about putting you through the refiner's fire. It's a way to refine us and show us, hey, don't lean on anything. I mean, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. God's not saying here you should hate your mother and father. What he's saying is, when it comes to me, you need to choose me over your mother and father, over your own life, over your own success. That's what he's saying. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his own son. It's that level of showing us that we have to have full dependence. God uses trials and tests, temptations to lead us to what we need to really love, which is him. Trials keep us dependent on God. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 says it the best. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What that means, that end, is when I'm weak, I get my strength through Christ. I, get my, I, I experience the, the, the strength through Christ, the fulfillment through Christ. It's Chris talking about she goes out and buys for the table of her own money, and then she literally turns around. She's like, no, not my own money. <laughs> turns around but gets given the exact money that she spent. It's that... That's the power of Christ. That's revealing, that's revealing to us that if we depend on God, if we lean on God, he will supply all our needs. He uses these trials to make us step out in faith so he can fulfill that and prove our faith to us to make us even stronger to face the next tribulation. Proverbs 3, 5-6, through 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Trials enable us to better help others in their trials. You know, Pastor Ben has such a powerful table ministry. And if you hear his testimony, it's because he came out of that same type of life. And so he has a heart not only for it because of where he's been, but he's able to connect with those people because of that. So if you're going through something right now in your life, God might be using that trial as a way to help you connect and comfort other people. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforted us in our affliction, that we may be able to comfort them that are in any affliction. Through the comfort where we, with we ourselves are comforted of God. Hebrews 2.18 this is speaking of Jesus, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So sometimes in our lives, the trials are used just so we can be used of God to encourage other people. One of the reasons I'm at this church is because of Pastor Tim's journey through being a man of Christ with his business. And how does that take place? How do I be the same, and the trials and tribulations that he's walked through has drawn me. That's that a practical just how it works. People are drawn. I'm drawn to it. And so God might be putting you through a trial in your life 
so you can then witness to others and use that trial to support others. I wrote this down. I think I heard Pastor Ben say it, which I think is really powerful. Let your test become your testimony. Let your test in your life become the testimony that you use to point others to Christ. Here's my application, I think, for all of us today as we wrestle with this and why God allows trials to happen to us. You know, it talks in James about counting it all joy during your times of trial. What that means to me is not that you would feel a physical joy when you're going through trials and tribulations, though you might, but it's that you seek your joy in Christ and you, you praise Him. There was a song on the radio coming here today. We've sung in church before. It's, I raise a hallelujah. And if you listen to the story of when that song was written, it was because one of the members in their church, their son, had had some type of accident and was on his deathbed. And the whole church, the praise team was distraught, and the person started singing that line, I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. That's what I think when you know, James is talking about, count it all joy during your times of trial, is when you're in tribulation, I challenge us all to seek our joy in Christ and to raise a hallelujah, to, to praise Him. We saw that in 1 Peter, the verse I read, that your trials would turn into praise, would turn into worship. So I challenge us this week to seek our joy and praise through Christ during our trials. I challenge all of us to acknowledge Christ in all our ways, to lean on Him in all our ways. First Peter talked about casting your anxieties upon Him as you go through these trials and tribulations. And then third, use your testimony to help others. Have you heard the Scriptures say it's better to give than receive? There's a real practical healing in that. You hear of people who are going through suffering. When they give back in their suffering, they actually themselves are receiving joy. There's a reason why when you look at the 12 steps, I think, of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the steps is helping someone else. Helping someone else actually overcome their temptation. Use your testimony. Use your test, your trial, your tribulation to give back and help others. Seek out others who might be doing, going through the same thing, and you'll see that not only are you going to bless them, but you'll probably be blessed even more in your giving.